This is Our People and Mother Earth on KWSO. During Native American and Alaska Native Heritage Month, COCC had set up events to highlight Native Americans. Gabrielle Hall is a Klamath tribal member and works with COCC. She gave a presentation at the Madras COCC campus about Indian boarding schools. She gives us an introduction of herself as well as an introduction into her presentation. I struggled with what to call this presentation, and I had it. I named it "Truth, Reckoning, and Healing: The Story of uh, Indian Boarding Schools." And I'm like, this isn't the story. This isn't my story. It's a story. And so I can. I see Native people in this room today, and I can almost guarantee that you are survivors of board, people that went to boarding school. And so this is by no means a comprehensive story of the boarding school experience. This is one of thousands or of millions of stories. I am a descendant of the Klamath tribes. I'm an enrolled member of the Klamath tribes, born and raised in Chi-Town. And then I went on to Oregon State University where I got a couple of degrees, ethnic studies, and then I went back and got a degree in education. I was born and raised in Chelequin, went to OSU. That's where I found like my niche. It wasn't until I was almost a junior in college that I took my first ethnic studies class. And growing up, I assume it's similar to growing up in Warm Springs as Chelequin, but you were either native or you were white. And it didn't really mean all that much because you know you weren't kind of singled out because you were native. And so it wasn't until I got to, it was actually the summer before I got to OSU. Us, some Klamath tribal members and some Warm Springs members were selected to participate in the Indigenous Peoples Games. And we went up to Canada, to BC, and I gotta tell you, we won a gold medal. We were pretty dang good. <laughs> and we were walking down British Columbia and they had banners up for Indigenous Peoples Games. And I was like, oh my God. It was the first time I had ever seen non-native people celebrating being native. Because you know, I had gone to the big tourney, I had gone to the Indian rodeos, I had gone to powwows, but that was always natives celebrating being native. And that was the first time in my life I was like, oh my gosh, it's something bigger. And when I got into that bigger university setting, you know, there was 34 kids in my graduating class at Chelequin. There was 250 in my math class at OSU. So I realized if I'm going to survive, I went to the uh, Michelle Carey of OSU. I got into the longhouse at OSU and I dug into the native community because we had similarities. We were all really funny, we had great sense of humor, and we supported each other. And so that's where kind of I differentiated and I became proud. It wasn't, it wasn't that I wasn't proud before, but it was unique on a bigger setting. And so that's where I started to learn my native history besides just my family history. I would say second to the disease, the Dawes Act was one of the most harmful things to Native people. And this is a quote, and it's a powerful quote, and you might want to think about it for a second. And the quote is, the new phase of federal Indian policy was known as assimilation. And as bad as the years of warfare and treaty making had been, assimilation would be immeasurably worse. So they're comparing forced removal onto reservations, open warfare, and they're saying that assimilation is worse. That's a pretty big claim, and I think they're right. When you learn what happened because of the Dawes Act. And it breaks down into three pieces. The boarding schools, which were to break down the family and reshape future generations. The Allotment Act, 
And this is what everybody focuses on when they think of the Dawes Act. And that was the breakup of the reservations and the selling off of land. And this is where everybody was told to become a farmer. And I think this is a hot spot because we lost 90 million acres of our land. So when people think Dawes, they always think Dawes Allotment Act. But it was a series of things. And then this is the least known. Have any of you guys ever heard of Indian offenses? There's a reason why. This was also part of the Dawes Act. And why, I don't know why you haven't heard of it. I think it's where the G word, where genocide comes in. Because this was a direct attack on the culture. It became illegal to practice your religion. If you were a medicine man or a healer, that was illegal. If you got caught doing something such as a giveaway, that was illegal. To the white mind, it was incomprehensible to not be selfish. They did not understand the native tradition about a big feast or a wedding or a um, funeral of the person giving all their stuff away. Because native value was based on how much you could give instead of how much you could get. And that was such a foreign concept that it became outlawed. And you would be denied rations or jail if you were caught doing that. And so specifically written into the Indian offenses is, at no point can you give away your belongings. And it tells you exactly what would happen if you gave your stuff away. And so this is little known, but this is where the culture, the religion come under attack. And today we're going to focus on the first part, which is the boarding schools. To be considered a person, you had to be a certain way. Indian kids were sent to boarding school to become not Indian. That was the whole purpose of the boarding schools. And they achieved this in three ways. First, they removed them. Remove Indian children from their families and their tribes. Second, you teach them English and a skill. I will say, talking to survivors, that's the number one thing that they took out. Well, they took two things. One, having a skill set, and two, learning and connecting and meeting other people from other tribes. Um, and then last, they would be returned to the reservation forever changed. And they were still native. They were still brown-skinned, dark hair, and so white, community, white society, even though they were English-speaking, frequently did not welcome them. However, their native society, they no longer knew ceremony, they no longer spoke the language, and so they weren't ostracized, but they didn't just fit right in. So we have these generations of people coming back that don't fit into either society. I'm going to start with Carlisle just because it was the first and it's the most well-known. In 1879, Major Richard Pratt opened Carlisle Institution. And he was a military man. And he actually reasoned that if I can tame some wild turkeys, surely I can tame some Native Americans. And him and some Buffalo soldiers actually went out and rounded up a group of Native Americans. There was about 12 of them. And they used those to see if they could institutionalize them and train them. And he was able to. Thousands of kids were ran through Carlisle Institute. And this is in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. This was the motto of the Indian schools. Kill the Indian, save the man. And to say that that's 100% accurate, that's pretty 100% accurate. Everything that was native in these people that they could kill out, stomp out, that's exactly what they did to preserve the man and the woman that would come out at the end. I want you to think about if I told you, everybody bring every single thing you have right here, and you're going to sit here and watch it burn. 
Just think about that for a minute. Like, what do we have? And watch that burn. Those are material things. How would you feel watching everything you have burn right here? What does that do to your sense of identity? At this time, it could have been, you know, an eagle feather that was bestowed upon you. It would be something of value. And we're going to strip you of that. And we're all going to set her. That connection would be lost. That's what happened to natives when they would go to boarding school. Secondly, we all make uh, specific choices when it comes to our hair. Native people's hair is sacred. They believe that there is strength in their hair. And I, I just, I'm new to TikTok. I've been watching TikTok for about two months now. And I frequently see these little kids and their moms are doing their hair and they're saying daily affirmations. You are strong, you are fierce, you know, those sorts of things. Native parents have been doing this to their children for hundreds of years. Frequently, when a parent is braiding a child's hair, they will bless them and pray for them. Those are affirmations that have just become the it thing, you know, in the last two years. Native people have been doing that forever. And what would happen when they would get to boarding school is they would cut their hair. And this is happening to kids. Maybe they may be six years old, they may be 16 years old, but they don't know what's going on because everything's happening in, other, in another language. And frequently when you cut your hair, it means that there has been death in your family and you are in mourning. So the wails that would come from the barber would go all the way down the halls and everybody in the school could hear it. Because the only thing they could associate was they had been taken from their family and from their tribes. So they would assume that there had been mass deaths for them to be all be having their hair cut because they didn't know what was happening because it was in a different language. And so think about if you had to have your hair cut today by force and what that would do to your identity and how you would feel. When they were taken to boarding school, they never knew how long they were gonna be there. So if you went in at the age of six, there was a likelihood you would not come out until you were 20. They did not know. So I want you to think if you were taken forcefully from this room today, who would not be here in the next five to 15 years that you would never be able to say goodbye to? That's what these children had to face. This was the reality of our grandparents. So when they arrived at school, another thing they would frequently do, is there would be a board like this, and they would have John, Sally, Jim, you know, the easy names, and they would have to come up and pick a name off a board. In native culture, frequently a name is earned or bestowed. This was another way to wipe away the culture. They, they would have their clothes changed into a military uniform, their hair cut and their name changed. And then students were frequently sent to schools far away from their homelands. The second Indian school, federal Indian school, to open up was in Forest Grove in 1880. But the second school, it was in um, Boris Grove for the first five years, and then it moved to Chamawa after that. And Chamawa today is still the longest running boarding school in existence. And something a lot of people don't know is these children ran everything. So can you imagine being 10 years old and you go to school all day and you take your normal reading, writing, math room. Then after you're done with that, you would do your religious <laughs> services and then you would have to go out and make your shoes or you would have to go out and tend the garden to grow your own food. Students were in charge of everything from the food they ate to the buildings that they lived in. Children built them all. Children built the Ch Chamawa campus. 
And so then after that, if they were actually all done with their work, then the children would be rented out to work. So they were not paid for, I don't use the word slavery, because that's a really loaded word, but the children were not paid for their labor. By 1926, the Indian office estimates that 80% of Indian school-aged children were attending boarding schools. And I want to make something very clear. When you hear 83%, that's a lot. You know, that's over 8 in 10. This was not because Indian parents did not love their babies and did not fight as hard as they could. If you refused to give up your children, you could be held in jail. They would frequently pull your rations. And remember, natives are stuck on reservations at this time. Often, I say intentionally, because I do believe it was intentionally, being held to become dependent on the federal government and the ration system. And so natives were starving in their own communities. So some natives are like, the best chance for my child as much as I don't like it, is for them to go to this school. And so there's even pictures, I have a great picture of teepees set up outside of Carlisle because the parents refused to let their children go and followed and camped outside the school. So even though this says 83%, that's not because those child's were, children were given, it's because they were taken. And this is just one generation. And I came upon my boarding school journey um, for a couple of reasons. First, my grandmother, Marilyn Hall, attended Haskell Indian School in Lawrence, Kansas. At the age of 12, she was separated from her two younger sisters. Lolly and Vera were sent to Stewart Indian School in Nevada, and my grandma was sent by herself to Haskell, Kansas. And I'm mad at about a lot of things, but I'm most upset. It's been 13 years in the court system. You're never supposed to break up siblings. And they did it on purpose, I believe. Because what makes you strong? Your family makes you strong. So we'll make you weak by taking you away from your family. And then another way we'll weaken you is once you get there, we'll take you away from your tribal members who understand where you came from, who speak your language. So they would intentionally break the recruits or the students into different groups so that they wouldn't be with tribal members who they could relate to and rely on for strength. And they had these things called a hotline. I had never heard of it. But if you got in trouble, and this was in the boys' side of the camp, they would line all the boys up in two rows, and you would have to strip down naked, and you would have to run through that line, and those Indian boys would beat you with a towel or a whip while you ran through that hotline. And if the kids didn't beat you hard enough, they got beat. Why would they do that as a form of punishment? Why couldn't the teacher just beat them? They did that to weaken the unity of the native people as a whole. Things did not happen by accident. They were done with purpose and intent. And they did everything they could to break down these children so that they could weaken their culture and weaken their ties. I taught this presentation Friday. And I was flipping through it on my computer screen in the morning and my five-year-old daughter came down. And she's like, what is that? And I didn't know what to say. So I just kind of sat there. I was like, those are little kids' handcuffs. And she looked at me and she said, what kind of people would want to handcuff little kids? And I just had the struggle in my head. I was like, she's a baby. I don't want to tell her what happened. And I just left it with bad people. Bad people would do that. And I flipped onto my next slide because I wasn't ready to address it with her. 
that video I was referencing earlier, I had a colleague, I sent it to, and I was like, hey, you need to watch this video, it's really good. She's like, I have a 13-year-old daughter. Should I let her watch it? And I was like, no, I don't let your daughter watch it. It's pretty tough stuff. And these are calls I'm making that this is, this is hard stuff. And then I want to check myself. I want to be like, wait. If your daughter was born at a different time, she could be in those handcuffs, because little Indian kids were. That's why these handcuffs were made, was to hold five-year-old kids like your daughter. And I don't want to talk to my daughter about it, and I have the privilege not to do that, because it's hard stuff. So just let that, I just kind of teared up when I was sitting there and tell my daughter, like, what's on the cartoons, you know? She just moved right on. But I was like, I don't have to tell you about this, because you're not born 100 years ago when this could have been your reality. And it's heavy stuff when you think about it in that tone. And the punishment that went on in boarding schools was beyond anything that we can probably imagine. One of the main punishments was for speaking your language. And that was frequently handled by having your mouth washed out with soap. And there's a Choctaw code talker. Everybody knows about the Navajos, but the Choctaw were the first. Choctaws were um, talking in World War I. And that's how the whole code talker came into play. And one of the uh, Choctaw code talkers, the very first word he learned in English was soap, because that's what happened when he talked Choctaw. A Navajo code talker talks about a time where he got caught talking Navajo, and he was tied to a radiator in a basement and fed just water for three days for speaking his language. And this is the language that it said that they basically saved the war on the Pacific front. It was beaten out of those children. And so anytime you see a language program for natives, support it with all you have. Because those languages have gone extinct in many tribes, and it's because of forced assimilation done with intention. There's something else that's a pretty big difference, and these students are from Spokane. And about the time they were recruited, there was this great warrior named Chief Joseph cruising around the Northwest eluding the US Army. So one thing that the boarding schools would do, again, with intention, they would go in and take the tribal leader's children. Are you gonna go fight the US government when your baby's sitting here in the government's hands, basically? They use them as weapons against their own parents. Here's a letter that I found this morning on the website, and it outlines what happened to the Warm Springs recruiting class. The letter is dated September 26, 1890, and out of 66 students, 22 of them have died. 16 were returned in ill health, but they believe they are still alive. Overall, the third of the children sent to Forest Grove and Chamawa would end up dying through 1890. Here's a quote. This is from the superintendent of Forest Grove. It has been said that to Educate an Indian is to sign his death warrant. And so think about that for a second. It's more important to educate you and most likely kill you than to just leave you alone. And where it said, how many? 16 of these children were returned. They were returned right here. The most common illness at the time was tuberculosis. Do you not think they knew that knowingly and returned sick children to their tribes, knowing that they would be cared for when they got back? and spread the illness, why would they do such a thing? Because to have dead kids on the campus was bad publicity. And so they would intentionally send ill children home because they didn't want that on their records, because it didn't look good, with no thought of what would happen when the children would come back. 
Indian children were six times as likely to die in childhood while out of boarding school than the rest of the children in America. This is how bad the boarding schools, schools were when it came to illness, okay? We know the discipline was extremely harsh, but the disease and illness within the school was even worse. One of the stories I found, I called Iga Gugumos from Pacific University, and she was very kind. I interviewed her for about two hours, and um, I was getting off the phone with her, and I said, Eva, is there anything you wanted to tell me that I forgot to ask? And she said, I've been waiting to talk to somebody from the Klamath tribes. I'm wondering if you know what you guys want to do with the bodies of your tribal members. Do you know what your tribe wants to do with those? And I was like, no, let me pass that up the chain to, you know, the important people. And I just, I got kind of quiet and kind of teary and I was like, oh. And so it was just weighing on me. What am I, what am I going to tell my, you know, my tribal council about these bodies of kids? And I was like, they got to know there's some there, but now it's time to make a decision because, you know, people are finding these bodies and tribes are deciding what to do. So I finished my curriculum and then I got to do the most amazing thing I've ever done. And I interviewed tribal elders. I interviewed twi uh, 25 tribal elders this summer. It was amazing. And I still had this load on me because I had to decide what to tell tribal council about these kids. And I sat there and I listened to my elders tell me how bad these schools really were. And it was heavy. And I'm right in the tribal council, and I came across, there were 13 Klamath kids, one Modoc, and one of them was 11-year-old Charlie Feister. Cause of death, gunshot. What? I don't doubt for a second that they would shoot a little kid when he was running away. But to actually admit it, these are the ones that are in the mass unmarked graves, or the gunshot wounds. And I emailed the archivist for Chamawa, who knows a lot about the cemetery. And I was like, Sue Ann, you have got to tell me, how did 11-year-old Charlie Feister get shot? And what happened was Charlie ran away from Chamawa. And he broke into a store that was attached to the post office in Salem. And the postmaster general shot and killed him. And he's one of those children up in the Chamawa cemetery. And I just, it just weighed really, really heavy on me. And I'm writing to my tribal council and I write the line, I can't say for certain if Charlie Feister was running home. I can tell you for certain he didn't make it. Is it time to bring him back? And I just started wailing. I mean, I've cried a lot in this project because I thought boarding schools were distant. They were in the past. And you know, you're separated kind of by time and distance. And then you find stories and you listen to elders and it's right there in your living room. And you're not separated from it. You're the survivors of it. And I was just away, crying really hard and I called up my cousin Mandy. And I was like, Mandy, what do I do? I don't want to dump this on tribal council. I don't want to jump it on our general council. They already have such a heavy load. You know, they're dealing with the pandemic. We've had mass fires the last two years. And this is breaking me. What's it going to do to them? And my cousin Mandy, She's, she's a life flight paramedic. And so she, she puts stuff in her worldview and she says, Abby, it's like a bone that was broken. For the last hundred years, we have patched it up just to make it through the day. It is time to re-break that bone and heal it. And it sounds really pro prophetic and poetic. 
And I was like, that sounds really cool, and it made me feel better. But my tribe and your tribe are gonna be breaking this bone when we start finding these cemeteries and these mass grave sites. In the last six months, more has happened with the boarding schools than has happened probably the last 60 years. So this is what's going on in the last six months. Over 7,000 bodies have been found. And the majority of these are coming out of Canada. And I used to call it a conspiracy theory, but I no longer call, that, call it that. Canada has apologized and recognized it there. Um, boarding schools, they call them residential schools there. And they have even paid out money to survivors. It's not a conspiracy th theory, it's a reality. The United States is still actively covering it up. Deb Holland in June did a boarding school initiative where we're supposed to start digging into it. And something that I think is hugely important, I don't like to come in and just give you sad history. I'd like to give you accurate history so you know where you came from and how truly strong you are. And so I think to fully grasp the magnitude of the people that you are descendants of, you have to know what all they went through. And don't forget, that includes resiliency and strength. That was Gabrielle Hall, a Klamath tribal member, giving her presentation about Indian boarding schools. I'm Duncan Bruno reporting for Our People and Mother Earth program on 91.9 FM, KWSO.